Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. In today's episode, you'll meet a veteran sage of the music industry. I sat down with Dave Noyaz of Cadillac Moon and the Walkers, and we talk about music, the muse, struggles, and discovery. We dive into three of his songs, and now let's have a listen to Never Look Down. I know you got worries. I know you've got pain I think I understand how you feel You feel your life is ever shorter Always filled with clouds and rain And your love and your dreams They're not real Let these things ride They'll soon be over Lullabies were made to ease your mind Don't run, don't hide Just listen to me one time Just once, hear your own lullaby Just once, hear your own lullaby Sing a song of sadness Sing a song of joy And sing it loud So everyone can hear Let it push against the madness Of every grown-up girl and boy Let it fly and defy every fear let these things ride, they'll soon be over. Lullabies were made to ease your mind. Don't run, don't hide, just listen to me one time. Just once, hear your own lullaby. Just once, hear your own. Lullaby I know I know I know let these things ride, they'll soon be over. Lullabies were made to ease your mind. Don't run, don't hide, just listen to me one time. Just once, hear your own lullaby. Just once, hear your own. Lullaby 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast. I'm Steve Yusko, your host. I'm really excited about this episode. I'm here with a mutual friend that uh, I got introduced to by Mike Nugent. His name is David Noyes, and you'll know him from Cadillac Moon and most recently from the trio The Walkers. And uh, I'm really happy that you're spending the time with me, Dave. Happy to be here. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. So um, we heard one of your songs coming in uh, to the podcast. We'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. But I'm really always interested in how'd you pick up an instrument? How, you know, what was your first exposure to? To how music found you, I guess. Wow, I I, I distinctly remember. Actually, I didn't see this one coming. My father had a 1907 Gibson Parlor guitar in the closet of our apartment in New York City, and I was about eight years old. It had one string left on it. Okay, it was all rusty. The bridge was peeling up, and I pulled it out of the closet and just was playing the one string. And there was a song on the radio called The Roof's Got a Hole in It and I Might Drown All right. by okay. these swingle singers or just, you know, one of those big singing folk groups from the 50s and 60s. And I started following the melody on the string, oh finding God. the melody on the string. How old were you at this point? Seven or eight. And I remember my mother just, you know, oh, he's a genius. You know? <laughs> and I, I th- and that was it for a while. That was it for a while. And uh, then I developed an interest in playing. Uh, I, I, I was, I was loving Peter Paul and Mary. Of course, I'm aging myself. And okay. I was, I was loving Peter Paul and Mary and the Kingston Trio and the Brothers Four and, you know, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Yeah, I just, I liked that music. And I, my dad got me a little nylon guitar and I just started learning these, these simple folk songs. Now, what, what's, what's a Pollard guitar? Oh, a parlor, it's, it's a it's a smaller bodied guitar meant okay. to not be particularly loud, and uh, it's just a smaller sized guitar. It's you know it's termed, it's referred to as a parlor guitar. Very right, cool bodies. That, that that's really neat. It's amazing. Now, did Dad play at all, or no? Like, how did that end my, up in the house? My father loved music. He played violin, and it always sounded like cats having sex. <laughs> it, you know, it just he, he but he loved it. And my mom was not particularly musically talented. Yeah, that was the same. That was the same in my family. My father could play the radio, loved music, loved all types of music, by the way. Mom was uh, a tone deaf. I've been accused of being that. (laughs) And it was a stretch sitting next to her in church, uh, you know, having her sing uh, in every key, uh, (laughs) which I've been accused of as well. But it's interesting that... I I took two things out of just that short story you told me about uh, your mother's encouragement. And, and you may have joked about it, but I'm sure that really played a role in in furthering you along in your your music career. No doubt. In fact, she never stopped encouraging me. She really? Oh, yeah. She was always a fan. Uh, my younger brother and I uh, wound up playing music together. He was also able. He had skills, uh, you know, those untapped skills as a little kid. Right. He wound up being a, a bass player, and he sang really nicely, and we... We sang together in groups growing up when we were teenagers, and mom was always a fan. She just did whatever she could. Oh, that's she really helped, helped us buy instruments. Uh, she supported us all the way. She, of course, she'd make us sing for her. You know, of course. <laughs> yeah, but that was a small price to pay for all the support we got from her. Yeah, I remember uh, Billy Crystal, uh, the comedian, tells a story about you know what really kicked off his career was really performing for his family. 
you know, doing impressions of, of different family members and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, there was uh, somewhat of that in my family as well. And, and now, as I reminisce about it, you think about, hey, that kind of puts you out in front of people and uh, for good or for worse, you know, better. You know, you're, you're out there and, uh, and uh, you're getting applause and encouragement and it, it's, it's furthering you along. I just yeah. want to make mention, too, for our audience, for people who are new to the podcast, anything that we mention or most things that we mention, we're going to have in the chapter mark. So that song you spoke about that came up on the radio, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to put a little photo of that group and that song. So oh. for those who are interested. How comprehensive. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, that's in case if it gets really boring, David, then yeah. people can at least look at the chapter marks and there kind of go. muddle through it, you know. <laughs> so you get the nylon guitar. Okay. Did you take any formal um, music lessons or where did it go from there? I learned on my own. Really? Okay. I learned on my own. Um, I didn't learn a whole lot. Um, I, I've had... My whole life, I've had an interesting relationship with playing a musical instrument. Um, without going on too long about it, I know so many people who I hold in extremely high regard mm -hmm. who have that obsession, who have that kind of uh, f f terrific focus right. on, on just staying with their instrument and working, working, working on it all the time. My relationship was a little different. I was a little bit ambivalent about it. I had other interests. There were things going on in my life, which also pulled my attention away from the guitar. So up, up until I was in my late teens, early 20s, I had an on-again, off-again relationship with the guitar as, as, a, as a general thing. Wow. I really did. And uh, that changed... When I hit a certain age and uh, I've I suddenly was swimming in a need to express myself. Okay. And the guitar became a very uh, concise tool to start writing tunes and to start expressing myself musically. But, uh, and even in my adult life, there had been periods of time when my uh, other interests pulled me away. I, it was always related to music, but I didn't necessarily play a lot. Wow, you know, you know what's interesting to me about that, and I've, I've you know, I've got a few dozen uh, singer songwriters and musicians that I've interviewed in the past seven months, and many of them had a common denominator of an obsessive aspect to their instrument. I mean, literally, whether it hooked them when they were seven or eight years old, or even a gentleman I had a few weeks ago who said, "No, I didn't really kick in till junior year of high school," and then it became uh, a thing that they really. Um, dove in with with two feet so it's I, I actually find it very encouraging to hear that you've had that on again off again relationship and and yet you're i consider you very successful in what you've done and we'll get into your career and and you know this music has that. been you know, thank you for that a, a constant in your life so that ebb and flow so for those singer songwriters that are out there that may have had or have now the relationship that David had with his instrument, all is not lost. <laughs> I certainly hope not. You know what? It's so funny because I, I have guitars behind me in my office. 
I've got I re- maybe my obsession is this podcast. My wife will certainly tell you that that's been my obsession. Where she says, you know, kind of shut up about it. Can we talk about something else at the cocktail party? <laughs> but um, and then I look at those guitars and I'm like, you know, and then this sense of guilt of yeah, I really got yeah, I got to break it down and 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 start as Mike Nugent would say, hey, you got to start woodshedding it, brother. You got to put the yeah. time. You got to put the time in. And I'm 61 years old, so uh, if I can. Uh, put the time in and, and try to make myself a little better there. Maybe there is some hope. You could make it. You could make yeah, it. But I'll never play on the podcast because that would be the end of the podcast immediately. I, you would hear people unplugging all over the world in multiple countries. <laughs> hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we just take a quick break? And when we get back, let's talk about what happened after the nylon string guitar. We'll be right back, everybody. Hang with us. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com. Check out all our social media links. Subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. Please comment. Call the listener line. Tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show. And most of all, we thank you for your generous support. And remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. Hey, everybody, we are back and we are uh, the beneficiaries of working in the Melts in Your Ears studio and at the controls is actually Mike Nugent. So if there's any problems with the audio, we're going to blame Mike. Okay, no, only kidding. (laughs) Hey, just hey, I'm number one, too. You're number one, too, Mike. When we last spoke, uh, Dave, Dave, we're with David Noyes, by the way. He's still here. He didn't leave. And uh, you spoke about getting this. Dad got you this nylon guitar and, and you started to progress with that. So kind of bridge me into where you moved from that nylon, learning that nylon guitar on your own to where you've played out publicly. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a long process, I, but I can digest it a little bit, compress it a little bit. Um, that went on for a while. There was a period when I wasn't playing that much. I got interested in model rockets and oh, cool. dreams of being a designer for NASA and, and all that. You know, the, the stuff that 10, 11, 12-year-old boys think about. Um, family split up. I moved to East Hampton with my younger brother. And my mom and her new husband and the interest in music started coming back again. At that point, I didn't even own a guitar. Okay. Yeah. Um, So you're in Manhattan, the family splits up, and now you move from Manhattan out to the east end of Long Island, which is a culture shock in and of itself, I would think, besides, you know, family transition. This is in 1967, so even East Hampton was certainly the country. Sure. You know, I mean, it was, you know, dead as a doornail in the winter. Um, I had, I, I, I ha- you have to go back a little bit. I did have a little Japanese electric guitar. Okay. That my father got me to. That, that was a period that I kind of accidentally left out. And I made friends with uh, my friend Kirby Helmuth uh, years and years ago. We were both about 12 years old and we started playing together. And we started actually writing songs together. Really, at twelve? Yeah, wow! And, and I don't have any recordings of them, but they were pretty silly. But it it was that collaboration that increased my interest in doing this and on a more serious level. Right. The absolute fun of playing with somebody else, and the the hidden benefit of learning so much. He was a better guitar player than ah, uh, yeah. You know, he was one of these 
these gunslingers for his age. And I just watched what he did. And whenever I got stuck, he would show me how to do it. And if I've ever had any training, it was from him. And then subsequently through my entire career, I've watched better musicians and asked them how to do what they're doing, you know. Well, I tell you, that's where the generosity, and I found this late in life, you know, I was a a closeted, I call myself a closeted player. You know, I learned on YouTube and and, um, didn't take lessons with Mike till much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to learn the neck, you know, what the heck I was actually playing. And until I played in a church band, um, then it really kind of kicked for me because then it was just then uh, everybody else was always better than me in a good way. And we were very generous to help me along <laughs> at a necessity to make things yeah, sound well, better. But it was great. We get gifts along the way. Yeah. We often don't recognize till much later. The, the little things that are put in place in front of us that we just take for granted as kids. Right, right. And when we look back on it, we find, you know, this, it was, this, those are all acts of grace by other people. Moments of generosity, which made it possible for us as musicians to keep going forward and not get discouraged. Let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me get in the mind of the 12-year-old David. <laughs> no, seriously, play, sure. playing with his buddy. What were your influences? You know, one, I think it's great the fact that two 12-year-olds say, hey, let's write some music together. But what were your influences at that at 12 years old that inspired you? Kirby's apartment. We were still in New York. I was still in New York at the time. Okay. This is before the, 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 the move. move to the East End. Kirby's apartment was our music haven. He had a, a, a record player and a pair of nice speakers, and we would listen two albums all afternoon and i remember what one, one uh, was uh, simon and garfunkel okay it, i can't remember which album it was but it, it had uh richard corey on it the tale of richard corey mm-hmm. so i mean they didn't make that many albums so it was one of three or four albums okay i don't remember which one and that's early in their career as yeah, well it's very early in their career yeah they're, they're they might not even have been 20 yet those guys okay and, you know, albums like that, we, we didn't own a lot of records at the time, but the ones we had, we just, we, we soaked them in. Right. And we were trying to learn the little riffs and, you know, what what beginners do. They, they listen and they try to figure stuff out. I, that's where I developed an ear. That was uh, great about a phonograph is that you could, you could just lift the needle off the record at that point. We just heard that riff move it a couple millimeters back and put it back down again and hear it again and hear it again. I always thought that was such a humorous thing. I, I always tell the story that you, you would we'd run across the room, play a song, put the guitar on my lap, and then when the part went, when we got past the part I was trying to learn, I would run back and, you know, move the needle. And it, it, was, it was so much work. I mean, things are so different now. Right, right. As we all know. Yeah, but... I, I, you know, it is. It's interesting to to have that ear training because you're training your ear as well. And the fact you picked it up at seven to listen to the radio, you had early ear training, or you had a skill. Yeah. That you that you could build yeah, on. Kind of innate skill. So what was what was the first? So you're there with your buddy. When did you play in your first band? I assume it was a band. I played with him. We played. Uh, okay. we, we were so excited. We were twelve years old, and and we. We often went to this uh, kind of luncheonette place a few blocks away, like 86th Street, 85th Street, and Lexington Avenue. And uh, we used to go there and, and have burgers and sodas and whatever it is that we were eating at the time. And he and we once we brought our guitars there, we were kind of sitting in a corner, 
Right. Just playing and fooling around. He said, well, why don't you guys come and play for me? You know, come come play as a, uh, you know, as a performance. And we had no idea what that entailed. So we, you know, we brought our amplifiers and our two little, um, you know, Japanese, Japanese guitars, yeah, <laughs> Zimgar guitars or whatever they were. Uh-huh. And, you know, we played a couple songs and then he kicked us out because we were too loud. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing happened at a church. We played downstairs in a church social and we played a, a few songs. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. Right, right. You know, we were just doing the best we can as a couple of 12 year olds. 12 year olds now are a different species than me and Kirby at 12. Right, right. They, I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. Just a different skill set. Oh, it's it's a phenomenal difference, you know, a quantum leap difference. Yeah. And we were too loud, and, and so they, we, we were asked to stop. <laughs> so, shaky, shaky beginnings. Key takeaway is they actually asked you to play, yes. you know, yes. which is, I I think that's, that's great. Oh, I mean, uh, we, we thought we, we were on top of the world. Wow. Wow. So, so bring me a, a few chapters forward. So wh- when did you... When did you hit the big time, I guess? I joined a band in high school. <clears throat> now I'm out east. I joined a band as a sophomore in high school called The Zoo, which I'm sure is a very typical name over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, and I had prog- progressed a little bit as a guitar player. I could play a little lead. I could play rhythm. I could I could work songs out. Okay. I, I knew I knew the basics. I could kind of get I can I could kind of get by playing simple rock songs, and. Um, we played a lot of uh, <clears throat> Doors. Ah, we yes. played, uh, you know, we we played both what was popular at the time and stuff we were able to play. And the keyboard player's name was Phil Markowitz. He was a dentist's son in high school. He turned out to be quite a well-known um, concert uh, jazz pianist. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, he he played with Mel Lewis, Thad Jones. You know, he he went on to big and great things. And Tally Jackson was our drummer, um, local kid, a black kid, one of my best friends in high school. Um, I played guitar at the time. Can't remember who else. Uh, and the three of us were the core of the band. We had no bass player because Phil, the keyboard player, played bass with his left hand at at 15 years old. Right, especially if you're playing you're playing the Doors. They didn't have a bass player. Yeah, uh, they played bass on the keys. Right, That's exactly right. I got to tell you a quick Doors story because uh, when I used to work in a deli, it was Nicholson's in Levittown. For those who might be from the area, and I had this guy Richie who would play the album The Soft Parade forever, and I hated the Doors just because he liked the Doors for no <laughs> for no reason. But from the incessant incessive playing of that album. It finally got through to me, and I appreciated it. And it was just just from sheer hearing it over and over and over again that I really got to like the poetry of Jim Morrison and, and the eclectic approach. I always just thought they sounded unique musically. Yeah. I always look for a band that has a sound that, that, is, that stands out. And, and sometimes I don't even particularly like it, but I like the fact that they have a a a sound that's theirs. Yeah. That was the thing about the doors. Plus understand, uh, you know, we're 14, 15, 16 years old, 
there you know we we own, each of us owned maybe five records right and we were not music hounds in the usual sense that you would think mm. um so we were playing songs that we heard on the five records that we owned okay. and picked out ones that we could actually play so it, it's it started small it started in a very rudimentary way which which i'm sure is a universal story you know you, right. you start simple and you your musical tastes evolve and mature and and you start you start developing your own musical taste. At, at 15, I had no musical taste at all. I just liked music, and I wanted to play the guitar in a band. And um, I learned the songs that I was able to play, and I went out and I did it. You know, There was very little conscious thought or planning to it. Yeah, you know what I find interesting as well, and I can speak for myself as far as music discovery, is... Um, I grew up during pop music, you know, which still exists today. The Z100s and, you know, the uh, the AM radio that was prevalent before FM really kicked in and expanded, mm-hmm. expanded our world. And then I found myself, in a way, reminiscing about music that I like, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Neil Young, and kind of getting in that hamster wheel uh, of that genre, so to speak, and... Uh, it was actually a radio station. It was WFUV Radio Fordham's radio station that kind of broke it out for me and introduced me to stuff. It, they had that hamster wheel, which I enjoyed, but they branched out uh, to other music that I would not have been exposed to. And if it's one wish that I have for this podcast is to find an audience that, hey, I, I want to go on a music discovery because there's a lot more that I can go and enjoy. And a lot of it is really kind of pushing pushing yourself out of your own wheelhouse exactly so, yeah. so to speak and, and getting you know quite quite an experience and i've been really fortunate in uh just some of the uh, musicians i've met and it's not music that i would have looked up to go out to but i've been exposed to and go hey that's pretty cool and i'll leave leave that mystery mystery there for yeah. future episodes but um and that's that leads to you know, finding your voice. But before we get into that, we'll talk about how you found your voice and and, and Cadillac Moon and the other things. Let's talk about um, the song that uh, our audience got to hear uh, before we began yapping away, and that was Never Look Down. So tell me a little bit about that song, how that came about. In, uh... Yeah, uh, you know, it, it boils, to me it boils down to where, did, where, where does the song come from? Mm, right. You know, and, and for me, and I can only speak for myself, it, it depends, depends on, on the song. song. Right. It depends on, you know, the songs come from different places, um, different emotions, but also, you know, the, the mechanics of actually developing a song in your head can be very, uh, very unique, you know, depending upon what song you're talking about. Absolutely. This one was Never Look Down started out as a... Um, uh, a little story about talks that I had with my dad when hmm. he was very depressed and uh, and he was trying to, through his depression he was trying to help me with mine wow and after the family kind of exploded yeah sure went through a, a, a you know a, a fairly extended period of depression and I remember just a lot of the things he said and they were very simple things mm-hmm. and the song kind of came out of that. You know, I have to remind myself that songs are sometimes the lies that tell the truth. Okay. Um, there's not, you cannot take anyone's song and assume that every line there is is purely autobiographical or actually happened. 
Right. So you're trying to capture a moment in your life where you had a certain feeling, you had a certain aim in mind, and you want to express where you were at that moment. And so that, that, that song came from there. It was just advice to myself. Interesting. Basically, advice to myself. You know, it's, it's funny. I use a tagline, and, and it sounds like a marketing tagline, but I say, let the music take you on a journey. And I'm conscious of the fact when I ask people about how a song came about, I generally don't ask, you know, what, you know, how'd you make that song? What, what's it all about? Explain, explain the song to me. Yeah, really hard. <laughs> that, that would be a huge disservice to people because it doesn't leave room for the imagination and for each of us in the audience to make it our own and, and, and let, I'm sure this has happened to you. Hey, this song meant this to me. Yeah, meant that to me. And you might say to yourself, wow, it had, you know, it had, it's not something that I was thinking about, but that's kind of cool that that meant this particular emotion or, or situation. To Any you. comment like that is, is a, a, the kind of validation which, God, I mean, it's wonderful. Right, right. Even a small, short comment that they, anyone would, would care enough or be interested enough to just acknowledge the fact that something you did move them even a little bit. Right. How how grateful I am for that, you know, whenever that happens. Yeah. Well, and I never expect it, but Right. And one one of the things and I'm in awe of of if people haven't gotten that already from from the different episodes, I'm really in awe of singer-songwriters or just songwriters in general that can say something in song that I feel and have meant to say but can never put words or music together with that, you know. Uh, and the other thing which I think is a great art and it's the way uh, I forget, I was listening to one of your songs and it was going into like a sorrowful phrasing as far as the words and you switch to a minor key. Probably the third song. Yeah, okay, so we'll, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll leave that a little bit of a mystery so and yeah. we'll, we'll expand upon that. But I, I, I think that's an interesting way and we'll talk about, when we get to that third song, we'll talk about how do you pick a key, how, you know, uh, when you when you write a song, so um, so tell me about this. So now you're out in East Hampton, you're playing around. What what was the next step? My high school band kind of disbanded, and um, my mother took my brother and I out to the music store in Southampton, took a bank loan out, and let us buy um, our dream instruments. We were at that point probably fifteen or sixteen. And my brother was just as interested in music as I had become. So I bought uh, a Gibson Hummingbird acoustic guitar, and my brother bought a, um, a Gibson SG wow. guitar and, um, and an amplifier. All right, all right. The story behind this, how'd you coerce and guilt mom into doing this? Because I think that would be a great tip for people. You know what? <laughs> I, I don't recall. Uh, I don't recall it working out that way. I think I could. I could honestly say that this was this was a moment in my mom's life when she really followed through her fandom, her her uh, mm. appreciation for what we were doing. Um, she, it, it was a very generous thing to do, and sure, we, you know, we, we the deal was we were supposed to pay her back. Right. And to a certain extent, I suppose we did. Right, right. But you know how those things go when you're a kid. Sure. And I, I, I really think it was just a genuine effort to keep us happy enough that we would continue playing music. Because there was something about us doing that which she found thrilling. She just found it wonderful to watch. 
Right. This was her just, you know, laying something in front of us that helped us move forward, like I mentioned before. But also putting that obligation of you're paying me back is kind of shoring up, hey, we we better, you know, this this ain't going to sit in the closet like the parlor guitar with the one string. This is going to get its use out of it. What I find interesting, too, is, is... you're, uh, maybe I'm reading too much, but your mother's support in that aspect, it's its not like, hey, yeah, that Japanese guitar is going to carry to you to your 40, you know, type of thing. <laughs> it's good enough. No, she she, she made, the, literally made the investment and took a loan out uh, for the investment that you made in your yeah, craft. So. Good instruments. Oh, God bless mom. Not that she, yeah, it's not that she knew anything about instruments. She, she left it up to us to uh, choose instruments that we thought were, uh, you know, were good and, and would do the job for us at the time. Question out of left field. Where are those instruments today? Uh, oh, yeah, that's a long, that. sad story. <laughs> oh, no. You know, how many times have I talked with my musician friends about how I wish I'd kept my 1964 Telecaster? Oh. How I wish I'd kept my 1970 Gibson uh, Custom, Black Custom, <laughs> uh, my Gibson Hummingbird, which oh. my college which my high school sweetheart wound up get, having and then lost it. Son and, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody knew at the time, this is on a different subject, of course, but no one knew at the time the value that these instruments would accrue over the years. Sure, sure. Um, you know, to me, a, a Fender Telecaster would look like a part of a surfboard with the neck bolted on. And <laughs> it was so simple and, and, you know, elegantly modern and simple. And it did the job. And little did I know that, People would be selling them 35 years, 40 years later for, you know, $30,000 right, right. had I only known, right? Right. And, you know, a lot of it's what I find interesting. It's not the mechanics of it per se, but it's what famous musician actually picked it up and made it their own, you know, that puts a value to a particular model. Oh, sure. Or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's kind of cool. Why don't we do this? Let's take another quick break. Sure. And uh, when we come back, let's jump into the second song that we have and uh, kind of explore uh, that. So stick with us, everybody. We'll be right back. Thank you, Steve. Are you a singer-songwriter who wants to take your music to the next level and you need some professional musicians and really that expertise to help you along, well, check out Melts in Your Ears Studio. It's Mike Nugent's studio. If you like what you've heard here today, Mike's the guy who can make the connections, put the tracks together, and give you a quality product. Check it out. Hey, everybody. We are back with David Noyes, and uh, we're exploring and discovering new music and great stories and I, to be honest with you, David, I find it very heartfelt because I find uh, a glimmer of hope, even for myself, if I decided to take those thousand songs that I haven't written and, and, and put them together before I die, you know, so I have some sort of legacy besides debt for my family. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the second song you brought to the table, Rain, Rain, Rain. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll let everybody get a, a listen to it. That song is also a good opportunity to go back and add add to my comment about where songs come from, sure. and, and each song has a different origin. Uh, rain, 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 for instance, came from a bass line, okay. uh, and it was just something about it that was bouncy. It's it's not a unique bass line. It's 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 a bass line you've heard a million times, mm-hmm. but. Uh, 
you know, if you get three bass players to play the same line, they're going to sound three ways different. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. Um, songs can come from simply coming up with a clever title, and you can build a song around a title, Sure. which is what happened a lot in Cadillac Moon, the band mm -hmm. I was in, where, where I really learned how to collaborate for the first time, like seriously collaborate as a songwriter, keep the ego out of it, and yeah. just shoot for the best product the best quality thing that you can come up with mm. allowing other people to uh inject their own point of view and i also needed a lot of help with lyrics i'm just not a great lyricist mm. you know mm -hmm. um sometimes i nail it and most of the time i you know i can't quite do it i need help right so i learned how to collaborate with cadillac moon both musically and as far as songwriting it goes so we we come to Rain, 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 which is a very recent song. I put that together last year. Okay, great. And the previous song I put together in 2002, but it refers to a discussion I had with my dad in like 1965. Wow. You know, so... You got, you got a great memory. Well, it's, a, it, it's, about, it's about certain events in your life sticking with you. Sure. And, you know, informing, informing your actions and informing the way you grow up and grow old. Uh, rain, rain, rain just it comes from a baseline and just feeling disgusted and angry at the world condition and the uh, narcissism that's been on parade right. that seems, just from my point of view, just seems to be getting worse and worse. It just seems that people, the way people act and the way people behave uh, is more and more on parade and more, more out in the open, almost as if they've been given permission to just act poorly. Right, you know? right, right. And so the song turned out to be, it's a bookend song. The first verse and the last verse are comments about those people from my point of view. That's great. My, yeah, my, my discouragement and my disdain for those people. I'm using quote marks here, those people. Um, and yes, it's admittedly a little judgy. The two middle verses are warnings to myself to behave in a certain way so I don't become right. those people. Let's, let's talk about narcissism because I think it's, you, you bring up a really good point. Uh, and that's, that's, that word, just even politically now, it's very obvious to me. But personally, I had a situation that I worked through where it was a clinically, uh, you know, uh, a clinical narcissistic person. Uh, to the point of, uh, and this happened to be uh, in the church you know, the, where I worked, and it, it blew my mind, you know. And and I saw, in hindsight, uh, which is my best educator, is a, a systematic approach to manipulation and the manipulation of people and the people that um, were co uh, collaborators in the narcissism, uh, either deliberately or unsuspe unsuspectingly. Uh, and now, you know what, this song is a good reminder for me, too, because you do, you do say uh, we all have a bit of narcissism in, sure. in, our, in ourselves. So it's something to be watchful for, but it's something that I can spot immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that calls in my mind to why, why, why and, and, and how does this happen? How do people support that? Uh, 
that aspect of a person's personality that kind of feeds in the cyclical style you know the yeah. uh, a narcissist needs a, um, a constant supply a constant supply of of of, of feeding yeah. uh, of feeding on that so anyway before i i jump off my soapbox let's jump into the song rain 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 but at least you have an idea of of yeah what you're talking about the first verse is a simple statement i don't care about your money i don't care about your fame and in fact from my point of view without those two things you'd be nothing at all you know, you wouldn't be famous anyway. Right. Um, that the, the the way American and Western culture uh, um, uh, honors and becomes big fan of kind of vacuous people that don't really have as much to offer as, as you might think. The last verse is just a, a comment on negative people who carry, you know, carry that dark cloud around. Sure. You know, you, you're like the you're like the rain that never stops no matter where you go. You know, pretty, just pretty simple. But the middle verses are, as I said, my my way of reminding myself that there are certain things that I can do um, under my own volition to uh, to be better, just to be better generally. Right. You know what? Um, how do you feel? Um, how do you feel when you're not coping? What do you do when no one's looking? Uh, those, they're all questions about general questions about how do I behave? What do I think about when I'm under stress, when I'm under duress, what do I do? Do I act out or, or do I remind myself there's a way out of this? It's a way out of every situation and every, uh, bump in the road. I do not have to become a jerk. Right. You know, so that's, it's not really meant to be a political statement at all. It's really just about just keeping your shit together. Yeah, you're just calling attention to the times, and yeah, and we all, we all anyway, need that. Well, the third song really does that. The second song is more, much more of a general statement about my anger and how to, how do I control that anger and not let it help me behave bad, destroy you, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's... Plus, it's very catchy, and it's got a great guitar solo. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how catchy this song is. Hey, everybody, <laughs> check it out. Rain, yeah. rain, rain, and we'll be yeah. right back. I don't care about your money. I don't care. About your fame Without those things You wouldn't be famous Anyway How do you stand When trouble finds you How do you cope When you've lost your way What do you do no one's looking at the end of the day. Rain, 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 go away. Don't come back some other day like the rain. Mm, you like the rain. How do you feel when you're tired of living? When you're someone 
you don't want to be Do you offer something When it's time for giving Graciously tell you i really enjoyed uh rain 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 and it really does hit some heartstrings for me and i'm sure it will with the audience as well you bring a lot of great stuff out there so where do you want to go next david um i wanted to make a general statement about songwriting in general we talked during our break about i i brought up the whole term songwriter Right, and it stings me a little bit because, uh, and this, you know, this is not about false humility. It's about the fact that I'm not a songwriter by trade. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a moderately skilled musician who happens to write songs once in a while. It had that's no reflection on the quality of the songs, mm-hmm. but it's not a commercial craft for me. I've always found it very difficult to write a song. Sure. And especially when I'm trying to write a song <laughs> and the songs that I've offered you here today, along with a few of the others are songs that kind of came to me. And I'm sure you, you hear that all the time. They, they come to you because something's been building up. Some musical idea has been bouncing around in your head. Right. And some emotion or point of view has been simultaneously bouncing in your head and they somehow during that magical creative process that no one can really describe they come together and a song kind of arrives and all you really have to do is polish it up and you know make sure it's it's as good as it can be i just wanted to get that off my chest about being a songwriter i uh, i do write songs and uh, but it's it's not it's it's not my commercial craft, right? So I'm a bass player and a guitar player. So what's what's interesting, and I have I've, I've reflected on this is you know I can only speak from a male perspective, uh, in that that need to create um, and to get it out 
is something I thrive on. For me, it's not writing songs, but for me, is when I'm in the, this is the creative process. I really enjoy it. I'm in sales. Sometimes I never see the fruits of my efforts. And sometimes I have to come home on the weekend and, you know, the, the dreaded or not so dreaded honey-do list is actually something I enjoy. Sometimes I need to physically see something that, hey, I did that. And I'm, I've been accused of, hey, honey, come look what I did. Yeah, yeah, okay, it's nice, but, you know, you didn't square the corner type of thing. Um, <laughs> but but there is, there's still that need and that drive to, to get that out. You kind of mentioned it earlier on in the podcast as far as, you know, when you started writing songs, you had that urge to produce. To yeah, express myself. Express yourself, you know. And uh, what's great about songwriting is... It's out there and it's open to interpretation, which which uh, I, I think is a good thing and can mean so many things to so many people. Let me take something out of left field. I only know you as a bass player. Obviously, if you can play the bass, you can play the guitar. Is the bass well? Not so obvious. <laughs> not so obvious. No, no. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, were you between the two instruments? Do you... interesting. In the very early eighties, um, I started. Pl- playing the bass more and more often with, you know, little trios and quartets, local bands, because there was a glut of guitar players, frankly. Right, and, right. Uh, and I had, you know, I'd hit a certain, uh, a certain level on the guitar. I could handle myself. I could learn some fairly, uh, you know, fairly complicated stuff. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't progressing as a guitar player the way I was watching other people progress around me. I was just surrounded by freaking geniuses, you know. Right, right. So I became, uh, I, I picked up the bass only because it was, uh, it was so much more in demand. Sure. You know, and I had played some bass in high school, mm-hmm. uh, the the pit band and all the plays. I, you know, played. Okay. That's where I, I kind of learned how to read music in a very rudimentary way, playing for the uh, school plays in the pit band. We actually had a pit band, you know, it was three years in a row. Um, so, yeah, I, I started just working a lot more as a bass player. I started um, uh, being exposed to a lot more kinds of music as a bass player. Um, and I was, I was really able to branch out. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the time came, of course, when I had to, like, rethink how I was playing the instrument. And... Uh, reevaluate um, how I was doing it because I, I started out as many guitar players who switch to bass do. They they start out by playing the bass like a guitar, right? And uh, it, it there's you know there's no fault in that. It's just a natural thing that happens. And uh, you know as I got better on all the instruments that I play, I realized I had to do some serious uh, what Mike calls woodshedding, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Call woodshedding. I had to reevaluate and uh, learn learn better techniques, get a better sound. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's equipment too. Well, let me let me you yeah. bring up a good point about equipment because I played a little bit of bass, very lousy, but I played it, and it was out of necessity as well. Maybe because I was a horrible guitar player in the in the church group, and they were like, "Oh, come now, take out two strings, and maybe you won't be as bad." But um, I did notice when I saw you play with the Walkers that you have a, an electric stand-up bass that you play. You play the traditional Sorry, bass. Yeah. Uh, this may sound like a stupid question. Do you play an upright big bass as well? Um, I do. I, I ha- actually have one in my house. Okay. Um, the problem is that they're physically very hard to play. Okay. And I ne- I didn't come up that way. I did not come up in like high school orchestra playing the bass. All right, right. Uh, and I never developed the kind of hand strength 
and okay. the arm strength. I'm, I may have had that 30 years ago. Right. But it's not something that I could sustain. I could not play a whole set of music on that, on those things. I love the sound, mm-hmm. but uh, it's just the the bass that I put together. That that upright thing is is really just an it's an electric fretless bass. Okay. That is played in an upright position because it's so long. Right. It's a longer scale, so it's not really a it's not really an upright bass in the classical sense. Okay. It doesn't have you can't bow it. Okay. Put a bow on it because the strings are flat next to each other. They're not round. Not like like a cello would have. Like a cello or a, or a bass fiddle. Okay. But I love playing that, and that you know that was just one of many alterations I made in what I was doing to change things up, hmm. try something new, and I I instinctively knew I would play differently on the thing because it's physically harder. Okay. And it's and and it's it's fretless. So there is, uh, I mean, I play electric fretless bass, of course, so I, I know my positions and there's muscle memory involved, but this was a different scale. Right, you know, right. The, the, the distances were longer and I had to learn a whole new set of muscle memories and I knew it would affect my playing in some way. I, I, I only hoped it would be positive and it was, it, it simplified my playing and uh, made me think more about uh, saying more with less. You know, and it's a blast to play. I, Let me ask you this: taking from a novice player, my assumption would be with a fretless instrument, you can slide from note to note without hopping over a fret. Mm-hmm. Very simply, is there something else that I'm missing of why somebody would choose a fretted bass as opposed to a fretless bass? It's it's all about the genre you're playing. It's all okay. about how you want to express yourself musically. The the other thing about a fretless bass. Or, uh, or well, mostly fretless bass is that you can also get a vibrato on your notes, like a violinist would. Okay, there's a vibrato. You can make a note waver, and which is a very slight lowering and raising of the pitch. Okay, by, by you know wiggling your finger. Um, on a fretted instrument, you can't do that. The f- the fret is a hard key. It's it's a hard stop. Where you right? got to be, yeah. And 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 the sliding also. It's very expressive to be able to slide into notes in a way that a, a fretless instrument can do it. Um, there are things that you probably wouldn't want to play a fretless bass on. I um, mean, if you're playing, I want to be sedated. You don't really, you, you're pretty much going to play a, a bass guitar. Right. You know, and bang the bang the crap out of it. Sure, know? sure, sure. <laughs> hey, well, I, I learned something today. So that, that's, that's kind of neat, you know, how you approach that. So um, you have many years in the business as a musician. If I dragged the younger David into this room, the 15-year-old David, we're not going to go back to the 12-year-old David, what advice would you give that David or any new musician who is, uh, is, is said, yeah, I can do this. I want to be a songwriter. What advice would you give? What a great question. Um, I didn't see that one coming, although I should have. What a great question. Um, I would say first off, first thing I'd say is, if you're a musician and you uh, you, you take what you're doing seriously, mm-hmm. um, if you only can write one song every five years, you you still wrote a song, and it has the same value as a song that was written by someone who can pump them out weekly. Right, right. You no, know? so never never undervalue the songs you write because you don't do it often. And because you don't do it as an everyday 
profession or an avocation. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing. Always, always try to be aware of where the song's coming from, what your motives are, what what it is you want to say. Um, if you want to write a song that says nothing important, fine, but it has to have some kind of call. It, ha- it has to have a quality all of its own. Sure. Uh, for instance, a song you can really dance to, right. scream and yell to. They all have their value. Right, right. All, that that's not what I do, but it's it's what other people do. They all have their own value. I would also say, don't be so afraid to. Don't worry so much about making money, mm. which was a big thing w- with me. I just was always, always insecure about making a living. Sure. So I would always put music aside, um, and leave it on the on on, on the shoulder, on the margins, to uh, to you know continue feeling I was earning a living, and feeling that I was being you know a responsible human being, right, right, uh, and contributing to the family and to myself and to my wife. And, uh, you know, that, that it took a lot of valuable time away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they say about worry, you spend all this time worrying about stuff that never happens. And then you look back and say, wow, what a waste. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The, what, what came to my mind, and I've had many a conversation with musicians who talk about coming to that crossroads. You know, I, I have a family, I've come to the crossroads where it was an either or. Uh, decision for them. Sure, yeah. Do I take the musical highway or do I uh, do the responsible thing and, uh, you know, put consistent food on the table, what have you, and that, that worry of, of money? But a term came to me, this, believe it or not, this came in my the- theological studies, if you can believe I actually studied theology, of both and or parallel lines, meaning maybe I can I can do both. And a lot of it is circumstantial. Sometimes it's you're in survival mode and you've got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Other times uh, things come into our lives that allow us to um, really delve into to the art aspect of it and survive at the, at, at the same time. Uh, so it's, it's interesting uh, that it's not always a crossroads, but it can be uh, a, par- a parallel. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. I was able to do I was able to get that done as far as taking care of both of these these paths and try to try to make them work together in some kind of way and you know there are ups and downs right sure sometimes you're really focused on the music uh, to the exclusion of everything else and sometimes like i said you have to put it on the margins but up until now many many decades i've managed to get something done right uh, in in the field of music i've managed to make a living Teaching music, mm-hmm. teaching you know guitar lessons, and doing gigs, and then doing you know doing the little side jobs that I've always had to do as a a gig worker type of type of guy, you know, painting houses and and fixing things and being a handyman, all that kind of stuff. That that all comes into play. But for for some wonderful reason, I never quit that ambition to just stay in the game. Right. Enough to, to get something done, to write something that was nice, that was good. Now, I got an, a parallel left field uh, analogy for you on that. Now, as you've done this work uh, and you're, you're, you've done it for decades, okay, but you still go out and gig and enjoy your music and play with your friends and, and do all this. And I, I was just thinking, well, what else in this life is like? It's kind of like golf, you know? 
where the golfers who, and I'm not a golfer, I'm a horrible golfer, I, but you know, golf, you can golf into your nineties. You know, that's, yeah. that's where I see the parallel parallel of something that you love doing, that you enjoy doing, uh, that, uh, and the other thing is, uh, you, in golf, uh, my assumption and being a musician, you get away from, I'm not Tiger Woods. I'm not going to compare myself to Tiger Woods. I'm going to do a little bit better than I did before by picking up the skill or or trying this or that. I would assume it's the same for a musician. Absolutely, as well. especially as you as you grow and mature as a person. You know, you you men of a certain age, right? Women of a certain right, age. right. You start to give up um, that grip, that tight grip on all the things you're worried about. You start to loosen that grip and it allows you to enjoy the moment that you're in a, a lot more, uh, a lot more. And it's the same with playing music. You, you know, the key word is my friends. Right, right. The key word. I get to play with my friends. I get to play with musicians that are better than me. I get to play with musicians that may not be better than me. But I get to play with all these people that are kind of after the same thing. That those moments when you're in the middle of something that's really good, right? And you know, how else do you get that? You can't buy that at the store, right? Right. I'll, I'll give you. You guys played for us at uh, Fred Shores, and there was a piano player. I forgot the gentleman's Mark. Yeah. Mark, who's great. And I, you know, it's something you see. I'm, I'm very. I try to be very in tune to watching musicians and how they communicate back and forth to each other. But you could see those moments between you guys that are there that's saying, hey, is this, this is a great place to be right now yeah. uh, in what, what we're doing, you know. And you're not thinking about because we're getting paid for this. You know, we're really enjoying yeah, it's, it. Yeah, it's often your last thought. Which is great. Yeah. yeah but re- remember, remember, a lot of that has to do with the, the men of a certain age. Sure. In my younger years, I was in a wedding band for, uh, I've been in a wedding band for 21 years. And it hasn't been busy for quite some times right right it hasn't really been an aspect of my life but the first 10 years of that band i was like just being driven into the ground with work it was exhausting and it and it wasn't that enjoyable right but that was an opportunity to actually make money playing music yeah and sure I was proud that i was able to pull that off to do that for myself to take that step and do something a little bit different less creative Mm-hmm. But I, I can't, can't tell you how much I learned doing that as a bass player, especially. I learned so much. I was exposed to all the music I would never have voluntarily learned. Mm. You know, I had to learn this stuff. Right, right. And, and so much of it was so cool. It was such, such, such great stuff to learn. As yeah, and it, it also took you out of, out of your wheelhouse. Absolutely, yeah, which is what we talked about before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dis- music, musical discovery, right? So that, that brings us to the title of, of the third song that, that you brought to the table, What Can I Do? Which kind of ties into the theme of what, when, what can I do as an older man? What can I do as a younger man, as a musician? What you had to do? Tell us a little bit about that song and then we'll jump into it. Yeah, that, that song, that, that was a song that came to me. It, 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 15 minutes. Oh, son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. You guys always do this to yeah, me. Really. <laughs> it rarely happens. I, yeah. I, I, wor- I can worry a song for months before <laughs> I get even the first line. Believe me. Okay. This song is, is you know, I have to say it's a, it's a direct result of my frustration with the last five and a half years. Okay. Of, of, the, of our country's condition. I do not want to, I'm not going to stand on a political soapbox here. All, all I'm going to say is that I was so disturbed 
by what I was watching in front of me mm. um, that this song just arrived. Um, it's a depressing song. It's a, it's a sad song. Um, but I think it captures that, that, that desolate feeling that sometimes we get. We just, we don't know what, what the hell to do. Right. How could this be going on? You know, right. what, what the hell can I do here? And it's that, it, it's that powerlessness. Yeah. That hopeless, so, almost yeah. hopelessness yeah. of, yeah, yeah, I can't influence what's going on. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's just a, it's a bunch of alliterations, uh, you know, the, the sun comes up where, you know, we all wake up. It's, but some people in this world have a horrible time ahead of them when the sun comes up. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're going to have a horrible, either a horrible event happen in their lives or they're going to wake up hopeless oh, and powerless. That, that reminds me, this is the song that um, when I was listening to it and, and people will hear the lyric, I'm not going to say it, that it brings images into, into, into my mind. But I also noticed in putting together um, with the music itself how you, how you drop into um, a minor a minor key or or a minor phrasing. How so? This song comes to you. Did the in this particular case, did the key for the song? Did the lyrics come first, and then you decided to put in the key? How did how did that kind of happen? I, I interesting, and like I've said several times, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, every song comes from its. The place that it comes from, right, right, right. May, may be completely dissimilar to what another song came from. Th- this song came, frankly, from an A minor chord in the first line. Okay, it just was there. The sun comes up. Uh, I, I I forget my own lyrics, of course. I can't remember the first two lines, but, but, but those minor, first two lines were there already, and the A minor chord was the there already. To, to gave that. me the framework. Okay, know? and the chord changes are really simple. You know, I, I wanted to keep it really simple. I wanted to I wanted the song to come across like something anybody could sing when they're feeling despair. Wow! That any or, or imagine singing when they're feeling so powerless to and lost, uh, lost by having anything in their hand to help the situation. Well, you know, you know, it's good for for uh, as a person in the audience or listening to this. In hearing these type of songs of lament, I'm not the only one thinking this. I'm not the only one feeling this. And there is a glimmer of hope that this is something that is being recognized. And through quarantine and everything else where a lot of us have been isolated and hopeless, sometimes hearing the lament from somebody else can say, well, there is some solidarity there. Yes. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't know what you can do, but maybe I know what I can do. And it could spur on inspiration as well. Isn't that one of the major driving forces behind popular music generally is the commonality yeah. of the message? Right. You know, wh- why do 30,000 people come to a concert and they all hold up a match, you know? Well, they used to. Now they hold up yeah. cell phones with right. their... <laughs> but, you know, that, that solidarity, like you said, that, that commonality, the shared humanity, um, that moment in your life when you know that everyone around you is thinking the same thing you are and that you get a little you get a little power from that right right a, a, a little hopefulness yeah you exactly. know a little hope and uh, that that song um it, it, yes it it it's trying to do that exact thing great all right yeah. why don't we do this let's take yeah. a listen to what can i do and then we'll be right back
hands up The day begins For all But what will come For some of us Is not worth the waking How do I Feel free today When young Jose Is in a cage How can I Have a happy heart When other hearts are breaking When will the sun rise on kindness When will the day break on to truth What can I do to make sense of this can I do? The sun falls down behind a darkened place where heavy hands and heavy hearts remain. The time is near, the time to face the lives that we're taking. with David Noyes. That was a really great song. I really appreciate it. I've got to listen to it two or three more times. Uh, it certainly speaks to uh, social justice issues, for sure. Um, so uh, I, I do want to thank you for being here and giving, giving me your time. But tell me, what, what are you doing now? I understand you, you play with the Walkers. Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of my musical avocation is playing with the walkers. Um, our activity level goes up and down in a waveform like, you know, mm-hmm. things usually do in life. 
Uh, we we have a standing once a month gig at a restaurant in East Northport Crossroads. And who's in the who's yeah, in the band? Alan Santoriello, who is also known to be the lead singer of the Little Wilson Band. Okay, a famous uh, you know renowned uh, band from the Northport area. Mm-hmm. Mike, Michael Nugent, of course, who I've been playing with on and off for. Many, many years. <laughs> I mean, Mike is Mike. Mike has his thing that he does. Um, I've Over the years, I've learned to recognize it mm-hmm. and to appreciate what it is he particularly does. And uh, Mike, Mike um, winds through an incredible musical vocabulary and archive, and uh, he's a freeform player. Um, if I had, if I wrote an album of fusion stuff that had very strict melodies, I, I would probably hesitate to give it to Mike because that's not how he plays. He plays from the heart. He plays melodically, but he plays from his archive and, uh, he's free form. And there are moments when it's just terrific. Absolutely terrific. Right. Other times you were, you know, we're, we're just, we're just spreading gravel. Right, just getting through the the bar, you know. Sure, but uh, th- those moments, those free form moments that really work, it's so worth it. It is absolutely so worth it. Alan's the same way. Really? Yeah, Alan's the same way as a singer, um, and I and I try to aspire to the same thing: is to be to be as loose and uh, and generous with myself as I can be. Try new things. Right. Just don't just don't screw up the song, but. Try new things. Try to step into the middle of that song, you know, and love the song, respect the song. Sure. And just, you know, do what we can to make to make the listener say, wow, that just I, I, uh, I I'm it's like they're hearing the song for the first time. Nice. You know, I just try to shoot for that, you know. So I, I play with so many great people and I'm grateful for them. all. I've learned so much from all the people that I play with. And, uh, you know, I can't I can't say enough, so I won't even try. It's just. It's been a it's been a great bunch of decades playing with all these these guys. Certainly, when when I saw you play uh, at at Crossroads, it, it was something. It was really magical, to be honest with you. You know, to see guys who've been playing for decades and really enjoying themselves. You know, not just yeah. going through the motions. I mean, they you guys really uh, have something special and something to be cherished. So um, I say this. Um, and by the way, we're going to get Al on the program, so we're going to guilt him to uh, being a guest on the program. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And if it has to be a three-hour podcast episode, it'll have to be a three-hour podcast episode. <laughs> uh, I, I end, A good friend of mine, Bob, told me this, and it always uh, really kind of stays in my heart, is uh, we don't know how much time we have on this earth. We know what's in our bank account and the fact that you gave me, uh, you know, some time here and uh, some great insights into music, uh, which are not only will benefit me, will benefit our audience. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for that. I had a, a, nothing but a pleasure to spend time with you. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Until next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.